Uh, if you have Bibles, you don't have to turn very far into them. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 uh, for our teaching time this morning. Genesis chapter 1, 1 through 5 uh, is where we find ourselves today. And um, last week we concluded a short series that we did in the month of April uh, about life in light of Jesus' resurrection. Today, the sermon series that we're beginning uh, has really been taking shape in our church over the past months. Uh, it's a continuation of some pretty big paradigm shifts uh, that we have been making and implementing uh, and pursuing as a church over this past season in the life of our church. So if you were here back in early March, uh, you may recall that we shared the decision not to reinstate home groups. We took a season of a break from those, and we, we announced back in early March not to, not to reinstate them. Behind that decision, and one of the things that John shared, Pastor John shared with you that morning, was, a, was for us as, as elders and for us as leaders, a rediscovery and really a deepening appreciation of this bedrock principle in the kingdom of God. That in the kingdom of God, it is disciples of Jesus Christ who make disciples. And there is no end around, there is no other way to that. It's disciples who make disciples. No, no church program, uh, no system can do that for us. And the, and the best that we're going to be able to do as a church is twofold. One, it is to create venues, to create opportunities for you to begin being known in relationship, for you to begin building relationships so that that life-on-life relational kind of discipleship can begin to happen. And then two, the best that we're going to be able to do as a church is to equip you, the people of the church, to be disciples yourselves and also to be part of making disciples of one another. So this series is really all about the second aspect of that, equipping us to live out rhythms and habits that are critical and central to the life of following Jesus Christ. This is a series meant for all of us together to be disciples and to be equipped to help make disciples. If we're going to grow as followers of Christ and we're going to grow together, if we're going to grow not only relationally with one another but really in our communion with Christ, What we need in order to do that is a shared framework. We need a shared framework in which to pursue that. We need a common set of marks that we can use to consider our own faithfulness, that we can use to consider our own fruitfulness in our lives, and at the very same time, consider how we can become part of God's work in other people's lives as he's doing the same thing in them. And in order to do that, we really need these common lenses. We need a a common set of questions So that in these relationships that we are forming and growing in, we can encourage and we can challenge each other to grow along the way. As a church, and if you've been here for any period of time, you've probably heard us talk a lot about this, we do speak a lot about these three core values. Worship, community, and mercy. Well, in this series, what we're wanting to do is spend some time examining both the individual and the corporate habits, rhythms, that will make worship and community and mercy not just theoretical values, not just words that we write on a piece of paper or hang on a wall somewhere and say, this is what we're about. We want to move that increasingly from a theoretical value to a value that is really embodied among us. And so all of this is the heart behind what we're calling rhythms of grace. Rhythms of grace. And this series that we begin today, really, I hope, and and what you'll see play out in the months and years really to come, is not just something that we're going to focus on for a few weeks 
and, you, and not just hear a few sermons and then we'll move on to, to what's next. It's something that we really want to see worked into the fabric of what it means to be part of this church, this church body, this church family. So we've incorporated these rhythms of grace. Actually, the first people that got a preview into this were those that just went through the in covenant class over the past month or so. We've incorporated this into our in covenant materials. Uh, We've put together a plan for adult education, seminars that will happen about once every three to four months, and it'll take us about three years to make our way through all nine of these rhythms of grace. More importantly, uh, what you'll hear in the coming weeks, these rhythms, they are not fads. Uh, They're not just trends of the present Christian subculture and things that we're going to chase after and kind of a keeping up with the Joneses and whatever the equivalent of that is with, with church life, keeping up with the church that's on the most cutting edge. What you'll hear and what the scriptures teach us are these habits and these practices that are part of our spiritual formation as Jesus' disciples. They have always been critical to the life of a follower of Christ. They will always be critical to the life of a follower of Christ. And so all of that to say that when we talk about rhythms of grace, what we're doing is we're really seeking to answer this one big question, and that is this. What does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus Christ? What does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus? And there's no better place to start answering that question than at the very beginning of the Word of God. And so I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is God's word. We pray for us. Blessed are you, God of all creation. You spoke in the beginning, and all things came to be. You spoke, and your word came to dwell with us, full of grace and truth. As we listen, may our ears be attuned to you. As the word is spoken, may you speak to us. May all that we hear lead us to you. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So as we begin this series, uh, let's consider two things this morning. This morning will serve really as an introduction to the, the whole idea of rhythms of grace. And these two things we'll consider are these. First, that we are rhythmic by design. And second, that we are rhythmic by grace. So first, rhythmic by design. Uh, There is so much packed into these opening verses of Genesis. What I hope to do is just step through a little bit and at least make sure we touch on as much as we can in our time together this morning. So it begins by saying, in the beginning, God. Back in October uh, at our men's retreat, I know many of the men here in the room were able to join us for that. Uh, David Miller walked us through this text and he asked the question, what is Genesis about? What is the opening chapter in the book of Genesis about? And there were many true answers that were given. He actually put that question to us before we even came. We had some time to think about it and come with some answers. Many true answers were given, but ultimately, 
With all those answers, the Bible, the book of Genesis, is about God. And with these opening few words, short as they might be, condensed as they might be, we're really given the lenses with which we are to read and to understand all of the words that follow. So there are other characters in this story. But the primary character, the primary protagonist in all of the word of God is God himself. So we will find in Scripture examples to follow. We will find in Scripture examples to avoid. And there will be ways to consider where we fit into the story. But rather than this natural inclination we have to begin with myself at the center and then figure out how all the other pieces fit in around me, we're to understand all of life with God at the center of everything. And we're to read all of Scripture, not just the book of Genesis, with a God-centered perspective. Similarly, the Bible contains uh, many moral and ethical commandments. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, I'm sure you've encountered many of those. But the Bible is not primarily a manual for life. It is not primarily a handbook. It's a recounting primarily of the great work of God. It's a recounting of the story of God and what God has made known, what God has revealed about himself and the good work that he has done and the world that he has created. We know so much, God has revealed so much, even in these opening words. We know right from the get-go here, for example, that God existed before the beginning. When the beginning came, God already was. And the way we might describe that with theological terminology is that God is eternally existent. He's eternally existent. Furthermore, as it says next, God created the heavens and the earth. So everything that exists, it exists because God made it. The earth, as it says here in Genesis 1, was without form. It was void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, exactly what that was like, exactly what that looks like, God alone knows. And one of the ways that God is other or holy or distinct from his creation, is that when you and I create, when we image God in our own cultivation, in our own creative work, we are always using things that have already been created. So only God, think about it this way, only God is a fully original artist. Only God is a fully original creator. All the rest of us are, in some measure, derivative artists. Which, if you're an artist in the room, that's like the worst possible insult you can give to an artist, that your work is derivative. But all of us, this is how God is distinct from us, all of us are derivative in our creating, in our cultivation. God alone creates the Latin phrase, ex nihilo, or out of nothing. In the midst of all of this, it says the Spirit of God is hovering. And again, I don't know exactly what to picture there. I'm not sure that even if I could picture it, that my mind would, would comprehend it. But this scene stirs a great sense of anticipation. This scene stirs expectation. God is about to do something. The Spirit of God is hovering. God is about to infuse something into the void, into the darkness. And God does just that. He begins his good work of creation. How does he do that? He speaks. He speaks it into existence. This is what we learn about God from the get-go as well, what he's revealing about himself. That his power, his absolute command over everything means he merely speaks and instantly out of nothing something is. And instantly, 
light is now separated from darkness. And God calls the day, the light day, and he calls the darkness night. And think about this. Not only now is there a distinction of day and night, light and darkness, but now there's a form and a structure of something that we call a day. Something that you probably have never thought through in depth that we just take for granted all the time. That there's a structure and a rhythm to your life that God created in the beginning. There's a day with different distinguishable portions known as evening and morning. And if we continue the narrative here in Genesis 1 on day 4 down in verse 14, this rhythm gets even further developed. It says in verse 14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. As we begin this series, here's what I really want you to see in these opening verses of Genesis. That God's creative work transforms formless, empty, contentless nothingness into form-filled, content-filled order. So God's creation is the transformation of void into substance, and his his creation is the transformation of disorder into order. Excuse me. That is a beautiful sentiment. I'm not um, choked up as much as I am unable to speak in my current allergic, congested state. Now, at this point, think about this. Where are you and I in the story? Where is humanity in the story of God's creation? We are nowhere to be found. We're only at the fourth day. People aren't created until the sixth. And what that means is that when humanity arrives on the scene, we are created by God into a world that already has form and order. So rhythms in our lives, structures in our lives, seasons in life, they are not a human invention. As many self-help books as there are on the topic, they are not a human invention. They are deeply woven into the fabric of how God spoke the world into existence. You and I have been created to live in this world that God has made, which is a world that is infused with order and form. And therefore, two things. Rhythms in our lives are both inevitable and they are good. Rhythms are inevitable and they are good. When God creates everything, he calls it all good. Thank you. And notice this form and order, the rhythms of days and weeks and months and years, it's all part of God's created work before sin, before the fall into sin. And so when sin does enter the scene, it attacks those rhythms. That's what sin does. It corrupts the rhythms. It co-ops those rhythms. It leads us into self-centered rather than God-centered pursuits. Or it blinds us to the reality and the necessity of rhythms at all. One of the greatest myths of contemporary culture, and maybe you've bought wholeheartedly into this as I've been tempted to at times, is that you and I can do everything well at the same pace, at the same level of focus, all the time. I know we're not charismatic and Pentecostal, but like, can I get an amen from that? Okay. We can't do it all at the same level all the time. That myth is fueled by systems. That myth is fueled by technology that make people more productive and more efficient than they ever have been in the history of the world. What I can do in a few minutes, what you can do in a few minutes from the palm of your hand with a phone 
used to take weeks or wasn't even possible at all. Where I can travel in half a day via an airplane used to take months. But what's been the byproduct of all of that? There's been some great advancements, no doubt. But also what that's done is double and triple and quadruple the expectations that we place on ourselves and others. All that's done is left us, not with all this free time to spare, but exhausted, discontented, and continuing to question our meaning and purpose in life. There's this retrospectively hilarious study from 1967 where there were some experts on time management. They delivered a report to the U.S. Senate. And in 1967, they believed that with the current rates, the current speed of technological advancement, satellites, robotics, and all these things, they were going to present a big problem for the American workforce in the years to come. What was the problem? What these experts said was that by 1985, people might have to choose between working 22 hours a week for 27 weeks a year or retiring by age 38. 1985, it's 33 years later than 1985. Does that describe any of our lives? Does that describe the life of anybody that you know? Is the pressing problem in your life or the lives of the people you know boredom and idleness? Maybe for a couple people, but for the vast majority of us, no. I haven't been bored in like 20 years. I'm not that much older than that. So I've not been bored for a long time. My point is this, all of this efficiency, all of this productivity, all the technological advancements has not led us into a healthier understanding and practice of the rhythms that are infused into God's creation. If anything, they have pushed us further and further away from them. But even if we like to pretend that we're not rhythmic by design, we will still find ourselves seeking out and implementing various kinds of habits and practices and rhythms in our lives because it's inevitable. Because it's hardwired into our DNA as humans living in a world that God made. We are wired as human beings to make order out of chaos. We are wired as human beings to form what is formless. I love how pastor and author named Eugene Peterson says this in a book called Seeking God's Face. We included the the shortened version of this quote on the, the sermon series poster and in the weekly email, but here's the extended version of this quote. We are creatures of habit. Knowingly, perhaps most instinctively, we crave and create meaningful patterns to our living. It's so mundane, we miss it. Three religiously observed square meals, meticulous hygiene rhythms, the morning ritual of making and savoring the first cup of coffee, a kiss to a loved one as you head out the door, habitual email checks, the exercise regimen or daily walk, watching the evening news or catching up online, all are pieces to the daily puzzle of ordering our days and we notice when one is missing. And then he goes on to say this, like the God who created us, we nail down the disorder of our day into a framework of meaning. We simply can't enjoy the freedom of life without a form, some skeletal structure on which to hang the flesh of our days. This dynamic operates not only in everyday living, but also as we walk out our faith in Jesus Christ. So because we are designed this way, because the world is formed this way, everyone has a rhythm. Some aspects are so infused into your being that you don't even notice them, but they are there. And the critical questions are, therefore, not if we're going to have a rhythm, but what are the rhythms 
that we will practice and what are those rhythms going to form in us? Second, not only are we rhythmic by design, we are rhythmic by grace. We are rhythmic by grace. And as we kick off this series, it's essential for us to differentiate between rhythms of grace and rhythms of performance. One is a response to a God-centered view of the world. The other is a series of self-reliant efforts to place myself at the center of the world. You hear the difference in those things? On the outside, they might look very similar. They're very different underneath. If you ever get the opportunity, uh, it's fascinating to contrast the Bible's narrative of creation with other cultures' creation stories and creation myths. Uh, One that's often compared and contrasted with the book of Genesis, for example, is the Babylonians' creation myth called the Enuma Elish. And there are uh, certainly a lot of similarities if you read it, if you compare it with the book of Genesis. But the primary difference is this. The Enuma Elish is clearly written to display Babylon as the pinnacle and the center of the world. The highest achievement in all creation, according to that creation myth, is Babylon. In Genesis, however, who is at the center? God is at the center. It's always God at the center. From beginning to end, even though humanity is the pinnacle of God's created work, even though God will choose Abraham and make a people for himself, and they will become a focal point in the narrative, the emphasis of Scripture as those things happen is always that it is God doing the work behind it. It is God choosing this family. In fact, in the book of Genesis, when humanity begins to presume, when they begin to assert themselves to the central place, that is when everything falls apart. Adam and Eve, wanting to be like God, rebel against him, and God's good creation is plunged into sin. And a few chapters later, humanity rallies together. They say, you know what? We can do a lot more together than we can do apart. And they seek to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. It's this defiant statement of self-reliance. It's to say, I don't need God to get up there. I can get up there myself. The fall into sin, the Tower of Babel, that is the trajectory of rhythms of performance. And it's the product of a self-centered view, a self-centered story. On the other hand... A God-centered story is a grace-centered story. A God-centered story is a grace-centered story. Why? Because if God is at the center, if our self-reliant efforts are always the problem and never the solution, then like Paul says in one of his epistles, what do we have that we did not receive? What do we have that we did not receive? We were created into a world that's already being made. Any of the rhythms or form that we're going to bring into our lives are going to be using what God already created in order to do so. We're created into a world that already has form and rhythm. What do we have that we do not receive? And in this place of receiving, in this place of dependence, our habits, our observance, and our practice of living rhythmically will always be the practice of responding to the grace of God. So God's people have always been called to live out rhythms in response to God. Here's the amazing reality for you and me in the day that we live. Since these opening words of Genesis, God has only continued to pour out his grace on his people. He's only shown 
more grace. He has seen, he knows sin's power to fracture and to co-opt his beautiful design, to take these rhythms and to corrupt them into things that destroy us. And he's seen it play out in thousands of specific ways. At times, so bad, it seemed it was going to completely undo all of his good creation. In fact, there is one other place in all of Scripture where this phrase from Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 is found. The, the phrase, without form and void. And you know where that phrase is found in, in the Bible elsewhere? It's found in the book of Jeremiah, where God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is saying that the rebellion of the people of God has gotten so bad that it's though they are uncreating the world. But rather than abandon the world, rather than abandon his people, God's response to that has always been to give more grace and to continue to pursue the writing of what has gone wrong. The ultimate expression of this, what we gather to celebrate each and every Sunday, is that Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, enters into the world. And entering into the world, Jesus Christ becomes for us both the example of what it looks like to live according to the design of God, and he becomes our Savior from all of the rebellious, broken, co-opted ways that we have otherwise attempted to live. Think about this. As we begin a series that's talking about how to follow Jesus and about discipleship, think about this. Have you ever stopped and thought how audacious it is that Christians talk about discipleship? Have you ever thought about how audacious it is that Christians talk about discipleship? About walking in the footsteps of Jesus, being conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. What on earth, what about our own experience in our own lives gives us the idea that we can possibly attain to that? Or that we even have the right to aim for such a thing? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve aspired to become like God. And you know what we call that? Sin. It was the epitome of rebellion. It was how sin literally entered the world. But generations upon generations later, we aspire to become like Jesus. We aspire to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus, but instead of rebellion, we call that discipleship. What's the difference? Grace. Grace is the difference. Adam and Eve's was a self-reliant effort to become God. Ours is a dependent, God-centered response to what the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection. And this is really the only reason that we have the privilege, that we have the opportunity to talk about discipleship at all. Because God in Christ has lavished his grace on us and he has called us in his grace to follow him and to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And in so doing, in that call and to our great aid, he has given more and more shape and clarity to what these habits and practices of faithful discipleship entail. So over the coming weeks, we're going to have the opportunity to explore these nine rhythms of grace. Gathered worship is the first one, and we'll look at that next week, that we gather together as the people of God on a regular basis to narrate and to celebrate the good work of God. Number two is daily prayer and Bible study. So not only do we gather corporately, but individually in our own lives, we attend to God through prayer, through reading his revealed word. We learn and commune with the God who is there. The third one is Sabbath that we rest from our work just as God rested from his on the seventh day. 
And we enjoy recreation and we enjoy restoration as we rest from our work. The fourth one is bodily consecration. Faithful use and care of our bodies because God cares not only for the spiritual but also very much for the material. Number five is relational pursuit. That we don't live as isolated islands but we are part of a people. And we don't assume that you're okay and I'm okay and as long as we're doing okay we'll just kind of walk kind of in tandem together through life, we, we care about each other to the point that we enter into one another's lives. Number six is one anothering through spiritual gifts. There are these 55 commands in the New Testament that, are, that use the words one another, love one another, honor one another, care for one another. And God has given grace to each of us in different measure, different kinds of spiritual gifts that we might serve the body of Christ, that we might live out those one another's. So we'll look at that. Number seven is mission. Showing and telling the good news of the gospel with those who don't know and trust Jesus, both in word and deed. Number eight is generosity. Uh, Sharing what we have with others, which also includes living simply so that other people might simply live. Number nine is service. So not only our treasure, not only our finances, but using our time and our talents to meet the needs of people both in the church and in the world. As we walk through these nine things, As we walk through these rhythms, we must always maintain this God-centered view of the world. It's deceitful how fast we can shift out of that and into a self-centered, disciplined practice of becoming better people. We are, and always will be, creatures of our God and King, as we sang together a little while ago. And the world and everything in it, including us, has always, is always, will always belong to God. Form and order and rhythms have been part of that before humanity was brought into existence. So as we walk through these rhythms, always ask yourself, are the rhythms that I'm pursuing in my life an attempt to create meaning and purpose for myself? Or are they a working out of the deep meaning and purpose that has already been infused in the world? Or this question, are my rhythms, are my habits, are my practices part of my plan to save and vindicate myself Or are they a response to the salvation, to the vindication that has already been given me in Jesus? Practically, uh, as you begin to perceive places in your life where you are living out of line with God's design, where you are living inconsistently with this call to be followers of Jesus, don't attempt a complete life overhaul all at once. Uh, I shared a couple months ago that during the season of Lent, I originally planned on giving up four fairly substantial things all at the same time uh, and was wisely counseled how dumb that was, picked one, and it was incredibly helpful. And I'll tell you what, it was also incredibly effective in the other areas even though I wasn't focused on them. The same thing applies here. And just as God created the world with evenings and mornings, lights in the sky for weeks and seasons and years, you are not meant to focus on everything at the same level intensity at all times forever. You're just not. So focus on one or two of these. Maybe one or two of these that feel particularly disordered in your life right now. So if you find yourself working seven days a week, focus on Sabbath. If you live your life like a relational island, then focus on relational pursuit. If you find yourself, as you step back and and reflect, primarily living for yourself, 
and not others. Focus on mission. Focus on service. Or if you've been misusing or you've been failing to care for your physical body, focus on bodily consecration. I and your elders and your leaders at this church, we will rejoice with you if through this series you come to a clearer realization that rhythms and habits in life are both inevitable and good. And if you begin to perceive more deeply how the rhythms of grace will be used by God not only to get you on, but to keep you on this road of faithfully following Jesus Christ. So as we kick off what I hope is not just a sermon series, but what is really a new endeavor for us, coming in behind, uh, pulling out the structure of home groups and saying, this is what it will look like for us to pursue relational discipleship together. These are the ways that I am praying. These are the hopes that I have for you as your pastor as we enter into looking at the rhythms of grace. May God help us perceive and live in light of his story and design rather than our own, because really that's what we mean when we talk about worship as a church. May we relate to one another in healthy and selfless and intentional ways because that's what we mean when we talk about community. May we contribute to the ongoing, creative, formative, orderly work that God is doing in the world by loving and serving our neighbors because that's what we mean when we're talking about mercy. May we see all of that as enabled and empowered by both the design and the grace of of our great God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, your design is perfect and good. And forgive us for where we, in thinking ourselves smarter than you, and the brokenness of sin that we experience, co-opt and corrupt those rhythms or pretend that they don't exist. We see, when we step back, Father, that we do live our lives according to rhythms. And we will see, and probably even are considering right in this very moment, the places that our lives are disordered, or the rhythms of our lives that are inconsistent, or the ones that we are just neglecting completely. And so I pray that as we enter into learning about the rhythms of grace and pursuing the rhythms of grace, that they truly would be rhythms of grace. That it would be our great joy and privilege to see the work that you have done in creation, and not only that, but the work you have done through Jesus in redemption, that we can respond to the grace that you have shown us with these rhythms and habits and practices, that our lives can become the faithful and fruitful lives they are designed to be as you lead us into that. So lead us into that even now, and as we come to this table, may it be for us as it is meant to be, a tangible picture but also, by your Spirit's power, a means of your grace, an infusion of your grace. We need your grace to sustain us in these pursuits of faithfully following you. So meet us now as we come, and we pray all of this in your great name. Amen. So this table is a tangible picture of the good work that Jesus has done on our behalf, the grace that we have been shown, the ultimate expression of the grace that we've been shown, that Jesus gave his body, that he shed his blood for our sins, that we can actually pursue habits and rhythms in life that are part of the design and glory of God and not part of this co-opted, corrupted fall into sin. In just a moment, there'll be servers that come to the outside of each of these two uh, 
the front of each of the outside aisles. Uh, the musicians will come up and they'll begin playing. Uh, we don't dismiss by row, so when you're ready, at any point in time, you can come up out of one of those, outs- up one of those outside aisles, uh, tear a piece of bread off of the loaf, which is gluten-free, uh, dip it into one of these two cups. The taller blue one is wine, and the shorter brown one is juice. You can receive the bread and the wine or the bread and the juice, and then you can return down this center aisle. Uh, we'd invite you to continue in worship with us. Uh, you don't have to be a member uh, of this specific church or any particular Christian denomination to celebrate at this table with us. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, uh, if you have been baptized as that sign of entrance into the community of God, whether that's been here or at another church, we'd invite you to come and to celebrate at the table with us this morning. If that's not you, uh, if you would say this morning, I, I don't know really what I think about Jesus. I'm here considering these things, but I would not say that I believe this at this point. I uh, just want to reiterate to you how welcome you are here, uh, that you are welcome to be here and to contemplate those things, to wrestle through the doubts and objections uh, you might have in your own mind and heart. Uh, if you would ever like to talk more about that, that would be a real privilege and joy for myself or other leaders here. So um, indicate that on one of those high cards. Come find me after our service. We'll find a time to do that. It'd be uh, my privilege to find that time. Uh, but if that's you, I'm actually going to ask you not to come and receive this this morning. As we come each week, in that action of coming, uh, we are proclaiming that we believe this to be true. Uh, we're proclaiming, once again, our dependence on the grace of God. And so we always want to honor and respect you and your integrity. You don't have to proclaim something that you don't personally believe. Uh, you can remain seated, uh, respected by all of us, and please do take me up on that offer to talk if you'd ever like to. We know from the reliable testimony of Scripture that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of many. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, we look upon your great grace to us, that you offered your body, that you shed your blood. And I pray that as we prepare our hearts to come, as we reflect upon the cost of our sin, as we reflect upon the great news that you have paid that cost yourself, pray that we would come desperate for your grace yet again this morning. And I pray that we would come confident that your grace is new every day, is new every morning that your grace is for us and to be found by us even now, even in this act of coming, even in this celebration at this table which you instituted with your apostles. May we, be, may we come this morning, may we be strengthened by your grace. May you renew us according to your image. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.